Ruth. We will be there this morning. We're going to do something a little bit different today. I'm going to read the whole of the book of Ruth, and I will provide a little bit of clarification as to why I'm going to do that right at the beginning, and then I'll read it, and we will have some, some conclusions at the end, but rest assured, we will not be going any longer than is typical, probably actually a little bit shorter. I had uh, read a book this past year called Five Festival Garments. It's part of a uh, New Studies in Biblical Theology. You can't read that from where you're at, but on the top it, it says that. And I have probably 15 or so of these books that I'm working my way through. And uh, this one deals with five books. Uh, the author refers to them as Five Festival Garments. And the five books are The Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And there's a little bit of a question in theology, why we handle these books the way that we do and why the Jews chose to handle them the way that they did. And just a little bit of a history lesson here. So the Old Testament to a Jew is not the Old Testament. It's called the Tanakh. That comes from the three groupings of the book. Those are the Pentateuch, the prophets, and the writings. And so you can see the terms there. We're familiar with uh, Pentateuch and prophets and writings, but it'd be the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And if you take the first letter of each of those three words, and then you add a consonant after the first, much like they handle the word Yahweh, this is the same deal. It becomes Tanakh once they take the consonants and add the vowels. And it's very clear what to do with the law, and it's very clear what to do with the prophets, but there's less clarity on how to handle the writings, or at least there was less clarity. And one of the ways that they decided they were going to treat some of these books, the ones that were a little bit of in the category of outsider, was they would put them with a feast or with a guaranteed time each year that those books would receive treatment. If you think about Jesus in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the law and the prophets, and that would be a phrase that's all-encompassing. It deals with all of the Tanakh, the Old Testament to us, certainly including the writings but uh, that means or that should show to us that sometimes the writings weren't handled as a, a piece that they necessarily knew how to handle or what to do with. So at various times throughout the year, they would read these books as they gathered together when they had a feast. The four feasts that you can see are Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Purim. And then the commemoration of the fall of Jerusalem was when they would end up reading Lamentations. Um, each one kind of goes along with the feast that is being celebrated and the reason that it's there. Well, as far as we're concerned, we're dealing with Ruth and the Feast of Weeks. And so here's a little bit about the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot. It's 50 days after Passover. So there would be Passover. And then if you put yourself into the Genesis narrative, they would then be leaving Exodus and 50 days would take them right around to the foot of Mount Sinai, and there they would receive the law. And so it's during the month of Ab, which is around our July or August, it's around the giving of the law. Uh, it was celebrated during the New Testament before the Holy Spirit was poured out. It's referred to as Pentecost, which comes from the Greek word for 50, so 50 days after. Um, 
the Passover, and it was a celebration of the Lord as provider and the one who deserves the first fruits of produce. I'm going to read a very small bit here, and I'm just going to grab chunks of it, so don't go there, but this is from Leviticus 23. I'll have a small quote later on. This is where the Feast of Weeks is laid out in the law in, um, in the Old Testament. So he says, you'll count seven full weeks after the Sabbath from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You'll bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. You'll present with the bread seven lambs. There'll be a burnt offering, and then with their grain offering and their drink offering. You will also provide a male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs uh, a year old as a sacrifice of peace offering. So there's the, the snapshot. Why am I deciding to read a whole book before you this morning? Well, here's the first reason. Number one is that the Jews, during the Feast of Weeks, they would be celebrating the giving of the law. So if this coincides with 50 days after Passover, that's when they're at the, uh, in the Genesis narrative, they're at the foot of the mountain, and there they receive the law. And so one of the ways that they would rejoice during the time would be to recite a portion of the law or at least a portion of the Tanakh, which isn't the law per se when you go to the writings instead of the law, the Pentateuch beginnings, but this is one of the ways that they would do that. Well, we here are celebrating as we have our little scene behind us, the gift of Jesus. And so you have the gift of the law, the, the spoken word of God in the form of tablets, but we celebrate the spoken word of God in the form of his son. So that's one reason I thought it would be good to read this morning. The second is that we're sitting on abundance, just like the Jews during this time were sitting on abundance. It would have been at, I already mentioned, the July-August time frame. This would be when their largest harvest would come in, and they would have enough to then make it through the, the colder season. And we too have been saving up all year round for Christmas presents, for good food, for vacations, for gift giving and all that stuff. And we're, for the most part, sitting on abundance. And so I thought, well, it'd be enjoyable if we read Ruth together and, and in the midst of being in abundance. And I just wanted to point something out. I said this was from Leviticus 23. What I want to point out here is that there's something called a peace offering. You can see that there. Two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. The thing about the peace offering is we don't quite understand why the peace offering was commanded. And if you think about what we talked about a few weeks back with shalom or peace, remember that word means fullness or completeness or abundance. It's not just the absence of war. It's actually uh, the opposite, the polar opposite of war, having a lot, not just being free from strife but enjoying much. And so a peace offering would be an offering that would be provided at a time when you had a lot. You had enough that you could provide this offering of peace. And of all of the offerings, this is the one that's most like a large commemorative family gathering because you would kill these creatures and then a portion of those would go to uh, the priests, but then the rest of it would have to be consumed by the family over the next two days before on the third day it was supposed to be gotten rid of. Well, that's kind of like a large Christmas gathering, isn't it? Some of us leave our food out longer than others. Eh, we get a little, little dicey sometimes around the Christmas season with food. But we do gather. We have lots of food and we celebrate. So those are my two motivations for why I thought it would be good to read Ruth and then draw some, some conclusions. Let me give you a couple of observations to start off with. I don't want you walking into this blind. I don't want you guessing as to why I'm going to be reading this book without you 
knowing the true reason why. So here are the observations that will kind of narrow what you're looking for. First of all, Ruth is very, very relatable to us. Um, there are some really interesting characters that make some very sketchy choices, which is pretty typical for the narrative in the Old Testament. We have Ruth, who is at the foot of a man's sleeping quarters one night. It's obviously more than just a single individual sleeping there, but it's kind of a, it's a strange situation for a young woman to find herself in. She makes a quick escape before others wake up. We have Naomi conspiring with her daughter-in-law to find um, an individual that he can or that she can marry so that they will then be okay financially. So there's a little bit of scheming that takes place. Uh, I'm not going to say what she did was wrong, but I'm also not going to say that in an instance like that, an individual would be free from bad motives. And also, Naomi is not in a good place, as we will see in chapter 1. She uh, really doesn't think much of where she's at and what God has done to her. Second is, God is not miraculously present. In fact, aside from just some colloquialism, so a greeting where his name is used or invoked, he's only mentioned twice. Once is in chapter 1 and once is in, I think, chapter 3 or 4, where the first time it deals with he provided food, as we'll see, and the second is that he provided um, fertility or an open womb. That's it. Otherwise, things seem to happen very normally. In fact, the way the narrator writes it, it seems like it's somewhat just happenstance. Things just coincidentally take place in a certain way. Third, there are some very unlikely characters and blessing and restoration come from things that don't seem to bring blessing and restoration. Ruth is a Moabite, and she's referred to as Ruth the Moabite no less than five times. This is interesting because Moab, if you recall, has its namesake from Lot and one of his daughters. So Moab was conceived in a sinful type situation, in a non-God-honoring situation, and Moab as then a people would be represented as not the greatest thing. Further, in Ruth, it says that we're in the time of the judges, and if you go through judges, you would read and find that Israel spent about 18 years underneath Moabite oppression. So for a character from Moab to be one of the starring individuals and to provide much in the benefit category would be a very strange thing for a Jew to find and to read. Famine brings change. Now, we would associate the lack of food and having to uproot our entire family and go somewhere else as a pretty terrible thing, and it is, and yet it is through famine that God makes a connection between Ruth and Naomi. Death in Naomi's family brings connection as well, not just the death of her husband, but the death of her sons, and it is through this way of death that God provides life, which is a, an interesting dynamic, and we'll talk more about that at the end, and also that they are in lack and that Naomi has to go and find food once they make it back into Israel again. They're in a, a low state of affairs, and God works through that to provide blessing to them. So unlikely characters and occurrences bring blessing and restoration. Finally, names really mean something important in this story. Naomi means pleasant or joyous. We find at the beginning of the story, she is not that, and at the end, she is. Naomi 
um, is bitter throughout much of the story, and she says to some women, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Ruth means companion, and as we will see, Ruth is a pretty amazing companion. And if I get my Naomi's and my Ruth's messed up, you'll have to forgive me. It throws me for a loop that the book is about an individual, but it's named after another individual. And lastly, Boaz means one who brings might. And we will see as the kinsman redeemer, he is one who brings might. So let's read, and then we will make some, uh, pull some truths from the story. I'm on page 222 if you're in the Pew Bible. I'm going to read out of the ESV. It's not going to be on the screen because that'd be a lot of clicking for the guys in the back. So if you want to follow along, I'm in the ESV. You can find that version. I will pray and then I will read. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for an opportunity to read it. And I pray as we look into this story about a woman and loss and uh, life and redemption that you would help us to see you as the God who works in the midst of these circumstances and who orchestrates all these things. And I pray, God, that you would be kind to us. Uh, Some of the truths that we're going to look at later on are hard to swallow, and so help us to see how magnificent, how big you are, how glorious you are, that we might trust in you and that we might see your goodness in the midst of hard things. And I pray, God, you be glorified. In your name we pray, amen. All right, Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malin and Chilion. They were Ephrathites, from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malin and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons or her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. 
But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go I will go, and where you lodge I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you will die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do more so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that you are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. 
And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, This man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings or your garment over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and then in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize her. And he said, let it be known that the women came to the threshing floor. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he also said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoke, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. 
So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, Well, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Well, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So, when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to to Chilion, and to Malin. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord. Who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in israel he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him then naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying a son has been born to naomi they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. It's a rather lovely story, isn't it? Once you read through it all at once, you see that it has all the dynamics of a, a lovely story, but uh, there are pieces of it, however, that are very interesting. That's what we're going to look at. The first truth that I want to point us to is that God is at work when it may not appear as though He is at work. God is at work when it may not appear that He is at work. If you think about the writings and what I said earlier, what, what do you do with these books that you have when they're a part of your holy scriptures and there's no real clear place to put them. Well, what if in the midst of the mundane, you use these books to be a part of the mundane? 
Part of the reason that they decided to use these books in this fashion was after a couple hundred years, they weren't sure what to do with them. They decided, well, why don't we just incorporate them and make them a part of our daily living? And if you think about where Israel came from and all of the magnificent things that they walked through as a people when they were being founded, much of what we have recorded in the Genesis and Exodus narratives, and then you go a little bit further, not much happens after that. They settle into a very, very normal life, kind of like the life that you and I live Here's how this shows up in the book. We see the narrator present some things that seem to be happenstance. Well, there was a a famine in the land, and wouldn't you know it, she happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Also, the Redeemer, the man that Boaz had just spoken about, well, he just happens to show up the next day by the city. Now, those are the the specific statements, but as, as you read through the book, you kind of get this understanding. It's just very happenstance. Things seem to work well. It's kind of like a, I don't know, a Disney story where all the right things happen at all the right times and even the wrong things happen at the right times just to move the story along. But these point out that uh, this really is God who is working in the midst of these circumstances. Uh, I think if we take the perspective that they just happen by coincidence, we miss the bookends that the, the narrator provides. So here's what the narrator provides. The narrator, through the mouth of one of the characters, and the narrator, we don't know if the writer is male or female, so I'm just going to say they. They, through the mouth of one of the main characters at the beginning, frames it and says, okay, beginning of the story, the Lord has dealt. He has done these things, the Lord, the Lord. And then at the end, There are more characters, and they're not main characters. These are the women at the end, but they provide the other bookend that says, the Lord has now done this. He has not left you. And so the narrator presents, even though it seems to be circumstance or happenstance or chance, it really is not. It is God working through the story bookended by the beginning and the end of God being the one at work. Second, God was at work and even in and through the terrible circumstances. And this is where the pill grows very large and becomes very hard to swallow. And so I don't want to be um, unkind to any experiences that those of you have had. I just want to allow the text to speak the truths. What we find here is a woman who has lost a husband and who has lost two sons. And those three occurrences by themselves would be Uh, far greater than most of us would experience. But then on top of that, she has to go to a foreign land. And then after she comes back to her own land, she has in tow uh, an unmentionable or an undesirable in-law who happens to be a a Moabite. And then they don't get to eat much, so much so that the narration provides that when the the younger, when uh, Ruth does eat, she's able to finally eat to being satisfied, and that should communicate to us that wasn't a very normal thing for these two ladies to be experiencing. So the text presents them as people who don't experience a lot of good, and yet it is precisely through the bad that God provides the greatest good. Let me show you a couple of these. So here's that same text, but now I've flipped the bookends. So we're looking at the end first. It's easy to say that God is good. 
when good things happen. And we find through the narrator, these women at the end saying, well, this is from the Lord. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. His name there refers to the child, Obed. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The narrator is presenting that God is there and active in the midst of the good. And one of the challenging things about reading the biblical text is that there are times when the characters say true things, even though they are profoundly flawed. And there are times when the characters say untrue things, when they seem to be presented as individuals who are wise. Take, for instance, the book of Job. You have three very wise men who come and do a very lovely thing to their friend. They sit with him as he is suffering. They do something you and I would have a hard time doing. They just sit with him. But then when they open their mouths, even though it sounds good and right, when we come to the end, we find the things that they have been saying are not true. Well, in Job, that's packaged up for us. We're presented with God saying at the end that these men that are speaking are speaking trash and garbage. But not all texts are that way. We have to figure out which character is speaking truth and which character is speaking falsehoods. Well, interestingly enough, through the narrator, even though Naomi has a a harsh perspective, she's still speaking truth when she says, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And she uses an interesting word, or that the narrator does, writes down the word calamity. And this brings up this question of, okay, if we accept good from God as the one who gives it to us, do we not also accept evil? And this seems to be what the story is presenting, is that God not only uses good, but also uses evil. And so here's that same word, calamity. This is a well-known verse by many people who think through and talk about this subject. Isaiah, speaking for God, says that God makes well-being and creates calamity. He is the Lord who does these things. It is, in fact, God in some way that we don't understand. Without being evil himself, he harnesses the power of the evil for his purposes. He doesn't just harness it, though. He's the one who brings it about. He's the one who brought about the famine. He's the one who brought about the death of the husband and the sons. In Amos, Amos says, again, this is God speaking through Amos, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Well, of course they are because that means that there's danger coming. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And here Amos is speaking of the judgment that will come if Israel doesn't change. And we know that the judgment does come and we know that the judgment comes through the hand of God through the Babylonians and then the Assyrians and then the Chaldeans. And lest we forget what happens in war, thousands of people died as the Babylonians came in and carried some away captive and others were left in destitution. These were not just angry, terrible men doing horrible things that died. Some of them were, um, we would say, undeserving people, innocent in the truest sense. And yet it was God who brought about this judgment and that means then that God must be using these things for his purposes. Two more examples. In Lamentations, Jeremiah the weeping prophet, as he sits and looks out over the destruction that has come now after 
the destruction of Jerusalem? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? It is. And for those who would object and say, well, how can this be? How can God be good when he uses evil? We would say, well, it is in the book of Acts that Peter says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge. And as horrific as the death of a husband and two sons and famine and living in poverty is for Naomi, we know what's worse than that is the the most heinous evil that ever took place. That is, that a perfect individual, one who never did wrong, who always loved God and always loved others, would be convicted of doing wrong and then would be sentenced to and put to death for a wrong he had never done. There's nothing worse than saying that and doing that. And yet we see and we know because of the beauty of the scriptures, it is clear as day. God uses the worst evils to bring about the greatest that he can do. And so here we see God was at work even in and through. And so as we sit in the midst of a pandemic with jobs changing and loved ones dying and um, things being difficult. You can hardly go to the doctor without having to jump through 15 different hoops. And uh, I was at the ER a couple of weeks back for something related to a family member and I wasn't permitted to enter into the room. And many of you have experienced something like that. We have nurses and doctors and medical professionals who have been working in horrific conditions for months now. God is still working in the midst of these days. He's not away from us just because things are hard and difficult. Last, just like Boaz is a type of Jesus, he was a redeemer, he was kind, he brought the greeting of the Lord, he redeemed. Um, So also, Naomi is a type. She is a type of those who put their trust in Yahweh. And this is maybe the single greatest and important part of the story is that what God does in the life of Naomi is what he does in the life of those who are worshipers of him, those who follow him, those who uh, bow before him and say, you are the one who does good to me. I'm going to walk through these very quickly. Um, So if you want the information, you can get it from me later. It's not important that you get all of the texts. What's important is that you see the themes. So there are four themes that show up that are probably more clear than others. There's this theme of death and life. We see that she was surrounded by death at the beginning of the story and then she was provided with life at the end. Uh, This daughter-in-law who's better to you than seven sons has now provided another son. And we see that in Jesus, in Ephesians, God has made us alive. We've been moved from death to life. There's another one that deals with rest and toil or rest and work. At the beginning of the story, there's not much rest to be had. They're moving and then they're looking for rest. And Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, you're not going to find rest if you come with me. Go somewhere else to find rest. I don't bring it. But then at the end of the story, she sits down and has her grandson on her knee and bobs him up and down. Grandmas, is there anything more enjoyable than having a grandchild on your knee or grandparents and seeing that life and enjoying what that means. All the fruit of the decades of your labor now, are, it's coming to fruition and you see something great. And this is what God provides through Jesus. The writer of Hebrews spends much time talking about the rest that Jesus provides to us, the Sabbath that he truly is. The third is this play on bitter 
and pleasant. Basically, every time you read through the book and you read Naomi, you should read pleasant. And you should notice how at the beginning the word bitter shows up a number of times and you see, well, this woman is tasting bitterness. But then at the end of her life, she finds much to be pleasant. It's almost kind of ironic that throughout the story, her name is mentioned so often and that name is pleasant as if the narrator is saying, well, she feels this way, but guess what's happening? God is making things for her pleasant. And again, in Ephesians, God says that we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Things are pleasant for us. And even though it didn't taste that way for Naomi when her husband was dying or when her sons had passed, God was working. And so for us, it may not taste that way, but we know we've been blessed in Christ. And last, this idea of empty and full. She went away full and she came back empty. But then the ladies say at the end, this son of yours will be a restorer of life. He will bring things back. This idea of then redemption as well, being made full again. And we know Matthew 19, Jesus says to those who follow him, it doesn't make a difference what you leave behind. You may feel empty because people let you go, but what you will find is that in God, you will be more full, more full than you ever ever been in any other time in your life. And one day we'll, we will understand that fullness to the fullest extent as we stand before God and we rejoice in the work that he has done and we are so profoundly satisfied with who he is. And so there are our truths from the book of Ruth. I just want to say we don't know how long the book covers, at least 10 years it says at the beginning, maybe 15-ish, somewhere around there. But in the midst of the sadness, Naomi didn't see that God was working throughout it all. Not clearly for her to say, call me bitter. But we know that the story ends up that she finds herself in the lineage of David, which means she finds herself in the lineage of Jesus. Take a moment to think about that. A Moabite daughter-in-law and her, actually, did you know that Boaz shows up as in, in Matthew under the lineage of Rahab, the prostitute? And so here's this strange, ironic twist, and yet these people are involved in the greatest story ever told. And that's what's true for you and I as Christians, as we are part of this story that God is writing. And ours isn't done yet. It's certainly greater than 15 years for some of us. And we don't know how long our toil and strife may, may be. We don't know how long the mundaneness will continue, but... God is present in the midst of it. Let's, let's rejoice over that. Let's pray, and then we'll do communion. God, we thank you for the story of Ruth, and we thank you that um, she is a flawed character before us. It's hard to be in that position of somebody who's broken and suffering, and I don't fault this woman for throwing up her arms and, and being frustrated with life. You know that I've come to that place many times. Many of us come to that place uh, in our lives over and over. And that's because it's not about us being perfect. It's about a, a God who is perfect and a God who is good, like we saw in Boaz, extending kindness to people even when they're not making the right choices and doing the right things. And that doesn't mean we don't choose those when we have the opportunity to. It means that at the end of the day, where we stand before you, has nothing to do with the choices that we make and everything to do with what you have done through Jesus. God, even taking you as Savior is not a work that we do ourselves. Like Jeremy talked about a couple days ago, 
It is the Spirit that gives life. And so, God, even the cry that comes from our lips of save us, that is not a cry that emanates from us. That is a cry that emanates and and comes from, from and finds its source in you as Savior, as God, pulling out an old heart and giving us a new one, one that then can see that we need you so desperately. And that's what the table is about. It is about, again, standing up and saying, I need this. I need this Savior. I will rejoice by participating in this feast that I need to be um, a child of God. I, I need his salvation. And so, God, I pray as we celebrate the table that, uh, that we would be rejoicing in that. In your name we pray, amen.